are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to The Addiction Files. We are back with another fantastic episode. We are discussing a really interesting trend, and this is to this is about the initiation of buprenorphine in the light of fentanyl. So this was a, a a study that came out that was funded by NIDA, and this is titled Buprenorphine Dose and Time to Discontinuation Among Patients with Opiate Use Disorder in the Era of Fentanyl. This was published in JAMA Open Network in September of 2023. Mm-hmm. And this was from Chambers Hallowell Zulo. This is a re- what we would call a retrospective study. And this was looking at patients in Rhode Island. And it was a pretty, pretty large study looking at 6,499 patients. There was n- not actually any patient contact. This was a review of prescription monitoring database. And they looked at doses of 16 and 24 milligrams. And we'll get a little, we'll go into more detail of the study design and a little bit later, which is which is helpful, I think, to understand the type of the study and why some of their methodology. But I think it's important. I think, Paula, first, let's just kind of back up and just talk about first. Why is higher doses being proposed for fentanyl in the first place? So, the- okay, well, I mean, we know obviously fentanyl, we're all well aware of the overdose, um, increase in overdose deaths na- nationally. And, you know, in 2021 reported to be you know, 107,000 people, and more than 70,000 of those were primarily due to fentanyl. So, it's a huge problem and it's got unique properties because it's highly potent synthetic opioid and it's causing really high tolerance in people and kind of rapid physiological dependence. And we're seeing this clinically. I see this all yes. the time. People start using fentanyl and they say that just even within a few doses, they feel completely hooked and they have to use more and more and use again and again. So there's a very steep curve to physiological dependence and, you know, substance use disorder with fentanyl. And it looks like there's some theories as to why that is so beyond just its potency. And you were just talking about this before we started, darling. You want to talk about that? Yeah. And this is this is really interesting. And this comes directly from the study. There were some theories in kind of their preclinical studies that have suggested the method of how fentanyl works, of why we're having such difficulty with this, is fentanyl itself, this synthetic opiate, downregulates the mu opiate receptor. So I'm just taking this as a direct quote. And so when it does that, it leads to a in this, so this downregulation that mu opiate receptor to a much higher degree than morphine. And then that's what induces that tolerance that you're talking about. So it induces greater tolerance to its effect. And it would, what we would do is assuming that data is that it would predict higher doses of partial agonists like buprenorphine would be needed to substitute for fentanyl than what would be 
previously, when we, all of our previous studies were always with opiates like morphine and heroin. And so we don't have that. And that's where we came up with all of our other um, studies previously were always using that we're, we're always using the morphine and heroin. And so that's where we came up with those dose recommendations between eight to 16 milligrams. And so when we're now using with this new, this new synthetics that are having this different effect on that opiate receptor. Now we are looking at this as something that is going to possibly require a much higher dose of a partial agate. So some of the methods in this study, this was interesting. So when we're looking at just provider monitoring databases, we know that that's not going to include prescriptions that are coming out of the hospital and it's not going to include OTP. So they did pl point that out that that's going to be a little bit of a design flaw there. But this does and the only data that they are able to report on is the typical demographics that you would see from the patient. So you have, obviously, you have their, you have the address of the patient, you have male or female, and you have age. And the other thing that was interesting, and they did look at this, was the patient's address and the address of the pharmacy, and they split it into how close they were to the pharmacy. So less than five miles or greater than five miles from the pharmacy to see if that had any kind of effect on attention too. So the study took place from, they looked at data from October of 2016 to September, 2020. And why the 180 days? So what were we looking at? This is from the study. The goal was to estimate the association between a patient's daily buprenorphine dose and the retention and treatment over 180 days. And that time frame came from the minimum treatment period considered by the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to measure treatment continuity for an opiate use disorder. So it's not that that's necessarily magic, but that's just coming up with that standard. And then a gap in care, what they defined as a gap in care was if when you have 27 days based on prescription fill dates and day supply. And let's review some of the findings, Paula. So let's go into that a little bit more. So what was some of the things that they found, Paula? So some of the, as far as like demographics of the patients that they ended up finding and the difference between the dosing, what did you see there? Well, most patients were male and aged 25 to 44, and Medicaid was the most common payer in this group. And they found that lower, what they considered lower dose buprenorphine, which was 16 milligrams or less designated in the study, was associated with 20% more discontinuation in treatment um, compared to the 24 milligram group. So when you look, this was, the raw data was 59% of those prescribed 16 milligrams of buprenorphine discontinued treatment, so there's not continued retention of the 180 days, versus 53% of those prescribed 24 milligrams uh, 
were discontinued in treatment within 180 days. So they performed a statistical multivariate analysis saying that difference between 59% discontinuation and 53% discontinuation of the 16 versus 24 milligram buprenorphine group is actually statistically significant. Uh, so there's a 20% difference in discontinuation and treatment, which is quite significant, really, when you think about the odds of people not continuing in treatment. I mean, when people don't continue in treatment, the risk of you know morbidity and mortality is quite significant. One thing that, oh, and then they also found that the higher dose, so 24 milligrams was safe and well tolerated. That's what they said about that. So there was not as many adverse um, effects reported from the higher dose compared to the lower dose. So it's interesting because we've, you know, we've gone back and forth over the years, especially since the beginning of buprenorphine for opioid use disorder, which both you and I, Darlene, were around for in mm -hmm. 2003, how we've kind of traveled this journey with this drug, looking at its unique properties of partial agonism and high affinity for the new opioid receptor, making it, a, you know, a non-kind of dose-dependent medication where that seems to have maxed out its benefit at a dose of, you know, 16 to 20 milligrams. And so now these the study anyway found that there's a 20% discontinuation um, delta between those prescribed 16 versus 24. So what do we make of that? And you know, I think you have some you have some comments about the methods of this study and the limitations based on the fact that it's just a longitudinal review. Um, and we need to see how carefully we can extrapolate the findings. One thing that's just aside that I wanted to comment about is it despite the dose of buprenorphine 16 versus 24 milligrams, continuation or discontinuation in treatment at 180 days for opioid use disorder was 59% for people on 16 milligrams of bup and 53% on those prescribed 24 milligrams of bup. That's a lot of people. That's more than half the people weren't in treatment at six months, even with the best treatment we have available. You know, buprenorphine and methadone are equally as good as each other. And that's pretty much what we've got, right? We're going to talk in a minute about what else improves retention and treatment, but we're looking at a really serious, chronically relapsing, deadly condition, opioid use disorder. Mm -hmm. And even with our best treatment, we have over half of the people leaving treatment in six months. So I just wanted to comment on that, that it's better than the alternative which is no medications, which the discontinuation rate is much higher. It's in the 90, 90 percentile range. So we have a much improved retention with medications, but I still think we have a long way to go. Anyway, that's just I, an aside. I, I couldn't agree more. Like, it, yeah, it's just showing that the problem is still there, that we we really are quite overwhelmed by these emerging drugs that are coming that we're seeing out on the street that we're having such a hard time they're overwhelming the me the medications that we have that's what i think we're experiencing and why we're having these conversations but yeah i mean back to back to your question that you were alluding to paula like so what are some of the limitations and the author did discuss some of those and then paula and i we were having this discussion before we started and talking 
<laughs> talking about who who's going to take which side. <laughs> but I think we both agree. And and for full transparency, I feel like sometimes you feel a bit sheepish because I, I can just hear myself like, okay, if giving giving a lecture 10 years ago, even five years ago, we were just taught this party line of, okay, this is this this receptor is 93% saturated at 60 milligrams. And really you, you don't need to go above 60 milligrams and insurances wouldn't pay. I mean, I don't know which was like what was guiding us more sometimes, right, Paula? But that's what we would teach. And we we have all we have all said that, and that's how we've practiced for years. But the substance use and when you're seeing this and still we are I want to make it very clear. This is not something that we are saying for all substances. You may still encounter patients on coming to you on different substances and you're not going to induce them with these with these what we call macro dosing amounts because you know, it's like Paul has talked about sometimes you have these little old grannies that come in here on their lore tab, you know, four to six times a day, but there it's quite problematic for them and they need to come off. You're not going to put them on 24 milligrams of buprenorphine. You know, they may not even tolerate six milligrams of buprenorphine. So that's not what we're saying by any means. We're not we're not changing it. But when you are using synthetic opiates, this is when you're having challenging inductions. This is where this trend is going. And that's what these studies are looking at. Is, is this a solution? That's, that's what this study is suggesting. So some of the issues and some of the limitations is one, when this is the first I thing. Just, that, I just want to say yeah. something too. I mean, the other thing I is, I agree with you. I mean, I have slide decks and talks that I've given, and we've even given content at the beginning of the podcast season one. Absolutely. That we yeah. probably need to go back and adjust, but we haven't always been right. You yeah. Know? And we're not right now either. So we're we're dealing with a condition that has, you know, 50% failure rate in treatment, even with the best medication we have. I mean, we're still figuring it out. And I think that's the thing is we had I had a conversation with in my treatment team meeting today because have a patient who's using fentanyl, really high doses of powdered fentanyl. We're trying to stabilize her on her methadone dose. We've kind of made it a clinic policy to not increase methadone doses and people are having AWOLs during the week and yet she can't stabilize because she's having so much withdrawal that then she's not coming to clinic because she's still using and so do we increase the dose? And so I basically had to go back on my word and I changed what I had said last week in treatment team meeting. And I think things are just continually shifting and we, we need to rely on the data to help guide us and that's why i'm so grateful that we have these ongoing studies to keep investigating what what really is helpful for people because we we still don't know and i think we need to be flexible and open-minded and instead of being like well you know we never prescribe more than 16 milligrams or or well everyone should get 32 milligrams i think we need to really realize that we're Diction medicine, much like neurology and psychiatry, they're kind of the frontiers because we're dealing with the brain and we just don't know and we have to I that we we don't ever say everyone gets 16, everyone gets 32, but both of us have ran into prescribers 
that every patient came into practice was given either the same the same dose of everything and and just what I brought it for some patients six milligrams is appropriate or eight milligrams is appropriate and then your next patient that you see that you walk into the room 24 milligrams might be appropriate sure. it's so just like everything exactly but that's what I think this is showing that we need to be very thoughtful and you need to take very careful histories and it's just like what you see and you need to work with your treatment team what are we really seeing what are they really using and get those really careful histories and and make your decisions based on that and then also the patient's response to treatment too right. it needs to be patient-centered and every yeah. patient's different and yeah yeah absolutely and, and that and so that we can we can definitely reach our patients. It's like you said, you know, they're they're not coming in, but they're not if, if the treatment's working, they come back. If we're not, if the treatment's not working, then we're losing our patients. So we've got to figure out what can we do to reach our patients. So I think that's really important. But yeah, you know, some some of the limitations, like obviously we we know what the patient was dosed but we don't know what the patient actually took and that's where Paul and I sometimes differ a little bit but we don't have the data on the compliance and we don't know the diagnoses per se of what they were using it for they using the films and tablets they excluded the the films that are prescribed. So this would be the brand name Belbuca that most people are familiar with that is FDA approved only for pain or the patch, the Butrans that is FDA approved only for pain. But interestingly, sometimes that's used for buprenorphine inductions. So off-label, but that's, so those were excluded in this study to try to just get that data just to look at so we have some of the limitations is we don't we don't know what what was the what was the diagnosis and what was the compliance we just know retention these are how many times they went and filled mm -hmm. and so all some of the limitations when you don't have control that's why you need to study where the medications actually you're you're controlling for dosing the medication and you have some compliance and information there those are the limitations the interesting thing that they talked about is you had this it it completely matched is what they talked about is you saw the first like early data you saw less doses of the 24 milligram. And, but then as you saw an increase in fentanyl use, you saw more 24 milligram. It's not that they didn't see higher doses than 24 milligram, but there wasn't enough data to get enough, like to be able to use that consistently. But it's also that frequently payers limit that. And so it's hard to use that as accurate data because it doesn't mean that that wouldn't have been beneficial, but is it just not being prescribed because it wasn't necessary or it wasn't being allowed? 
Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that's why there was a little bit of that information of that's why that dose, why were they just focused on those two doses? But these are some, just some future areas that need to be studied. And the authors talked about that, that, you know, this is just to get the, this is good to get the conversation starting and to get the information out there that we really maybe need to start looking at some of these dosing options and, and like Paula said, individualizing our treatment plans. And hopefully more data is going to come, which will make it easier for us to prescribe. But I really do appreciate the study. I don't want to make it sound at all negative. I do appreciate the study because I think that also helps us for the times because I still get pushback sometimes when I've had patients where you need to move up to 24. I do get pushback from payers that won't pay for doses above 16 milligrams. And I think that still happens. And this, I don't think that's only in our state. Mm. So I think that's interesting. And then Paula, we we talked about this. So retention and treatment, there's two interesting studies that you brought up. Do you want to go into those some more that talk about how do we, and this is what the, the authors really didn't go into because we can't really interpret that data out of this, but what factors and what do we know about retaining patients in treatment? Right, because this study just looks at dose of buprenorphine, but what yeah. other things can, what other strategies do we have for retaining uh, folks when they're taking medications for opioid use disorder? So there is a rapid evidence review that was published in the Journal of Addiction Medicine in 2021. Uh, the primary author was Brian Chan. And they searched Medline and the Cochrane Library from 2009 to 2019, so over a 10-year period. And um, they looked at, you know, care setting services, logistical support, contingency management, IT, different formulations of buprenorphine and naltrexone, actually, psychosocial interventions um, that and assessed retention at least three months. So they ended up looking at two systematic reviews and 39 primary studies. Um, some of them didn't look at retention as the primary focus, but what they did find is that there were some things that emerged out of all of this review. So, and these are some key points I think they're good to take away. So number one, initiating medications for opioid use disorder and soon to be released incarcerated people improved retentions following release. This makes so much sense. I mean, we have a really, really high-risk population, incarcerated people. When they leave, they're at the highest risk of all people in terms of overdose and death and reusing opioids. And so if we initiate medications for opioid use disorder before they're released, they're more likely to be retained. And that includes buprenorphine, methadone, and naltrexone. They looked at contingency management, and they found that it may improve retention uh, but only in the group that was using naltrexone, not buprenorphine or methadone. So that's interesting. I'm not sure I've ever heard that before. So I'd be interested to track that down um, and why contingency management worked in the naltrexone group and not in the, the agonist group. Um, but it'd it be has... interesting to look at the methods of mm -hmm. if patients self-selected. Right, like yeah. you, Because the patients that I find who are usually on the naltrexone are very motivated for kind of the for abstinent like they feel like that's their abstinence mm -hmm. and so they're really motivated and if they somehow kind of self-selected but it should be you would think it 
if it was a study that was randomized, but yeah, I'd have to look more closely at that study. Right. And we find that retention is pretty comparable if we look at extended release versus daily buprenorphine. So it's pretty much the same um, in this population, in these reviews. And there's not similar retention when we look at extended release naltrexone versus daily buprenorphine. So with opioid use disorder, we're not talking about other substance use disorders. Buprenorphine is superior to extended release naltrexone. And we think that has, we've talked about this before, but we think this has a lot to do with um with the fact that an agonist at the opioid receptor yeah. makes all the difference. Um, and then what is always really interesting, and this comes up time and time again, is most psychosocial interventions, even though we insist on them, they're part of the federal rules, they're part of OTP guidelines, we ins- we write that patients need to do this, but most psychosocial interventions when it comes to OUD do not improve retention. So that's an interesting study. I think it's good to refer to that. And we know what improves retention and what doesn't. Yeah, I think that's great. It's not that our patients don't benefit from psychosocial interventions, but it's like what you said, it's not stopping the, it's, it's not reducing overdose is what another study showed. And it's not improving their retention and treatment. Okay. Right. So a thing to think about when it comes down to this is we're not discounting psychosocial treatments. We're not discounting the value of therapy or groups. But when it comes to providing access to treatment and it comes down to just getting people on medications, that is the primary goal. We should not make therapy and counseling necessary and required and discharge patients or refuse to give them medications when they won't participate in psychosocial treatments saying that they should because the evidence actually shows that it doesn't improve retention. Now, it may improve individuals' retention. Absolutely, everyone has a different response to treatment. But overall, these antiquated ideas that people must participate in psychosocial interventions um, have been discredited. Right, and then there's another study, and this is a little bit more of a niche population, but again, I just thought I'd bring it up. This was a study that was released in JAMA um, Open Network in September 2021, and the author is Joshua Lee et al., and he looked at comparison of treatment retention of adults with opioid addiction managed with extended-release buprenorphine versus daily single buprenorphine naloxone at the time of release from jail. So this is an interesting question. I think those of us who are working with patients with opioid use disorder, we wonder all the time, like, is extended-release buprenorphine versus daily better? Well, we just heard from the previous study that retention is similar for both. However, when it comes to folks who are being released from jail, if we give them extended release bup versus daily sublingual bup, what is the outcome? So this is an open label randomized effectiveness study. It looked at 52 incarcerated adults in New York City, so not a huge study. It served them for eight weeks post-release in 2019. And uh, the main outcomes were buprenorphine treatment retention at eight weeks. So they offered extended release buprenorphine prior to release and continued monthly through the eight weeks after release. So probably just one more injection um, after they were released. And they also offered sublingual buprenorphine to the other 
group, and they received daily directly observed in jail sublingual administration, and then they were provided with a seven-day sublingual buprenorphine supply at jail release and then follow up at a designated clinic. And what they found was that um, between the two groups, the community buprenorphine treatment retention at week eight post-release in the extended buprenorphine group was 69.2%, which is actually pretty good, versus 34.6% um, in the daily sublingual group. That's right. So quite a significant difference there. Now, I have a comment about that, but they also looked at rates of opioid negative urine tests. And in the extended release buprenorphine group, opioid negative urine tests were found in 55% of the follow-up group versus 38.4% of the sublingual group. There was no difference in adverse effects or overdoses or deaths, but that's pretty significant difference between extended release and sublingual buprenorphine. What I wonder about is, is if they had given the sublingual buprenorphine folks enough medication to get them through the eight weeks if it would have had different outcomes, but they gave them seven days and then a referral to a designated clinic. I'm just wondering how many actually, you know, how much that affected people. Because yeah. we all know that that gap in treatment or that transfer can be so difficult for people. But yeah, especially I don't know. high risk groups. That? Right. Yeah I, yeah. yeah. I agree. Like it's very difficult to get that data because when you try to remove continuity, and and that was a thing I didn't bring up before when you're just looking at the data, like is is retent we can't talk about retention treatment, like how many of these were okay, were these just initiation in some clinic and then were they allowed to is the continuity affected by exactly what you're talking about? That this was just somewhere where they were maybe starting in a treatment program and then transferring and that wasn't supposed to be long term and that's what's affecting some of this mm -hmm. yeah know? but and it's I, also, that's a common issue you know like right right it's a common issue or is this particular population much more responsive to extended release buprenorphine in terms of all the other things they have to deal with when they get out mm -hmm. rehousing reintroduction to society dealing with fines dealing with ap and p and that extended release buprenorphine just makes much more sense than giving them daily buprenorphine and expecting them to go to a clinic every week or every day if they're an OTP or every month even. Mm -hmm. um, so like I work in a jail, I, I found this study very interesting. What I want to know is how do we get patients extended uh, do, release buprenorphine I, on release? I'm going to tell you. That is the I, magic question. That is the magic thing because I... Because no yeah, one pays for it. I deal with a similar population and I can't get them either. So. To pay for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, deal, yeah, you deal with the prison release patients. <laughs> so anyway, so in retention for patients who actually get the medication, that's the number one takeaway. Patients are retained if they get the medication. Maybe higher dose is better in the age of fentanyl, 24 milligrams versus 16. It looks like there's probably a 20, according to this study, 20% difference. And then other things that improve retention are, um, you know, maybe contingency management if they're on naltrexone, not psychosocial things, and then initiating MOUD in people soon to be released from incarcerated settings and consider extended release buprenorphine for those folks versus daily. Well, and I would just add from our experience, 
the extended release buprenorphine for any kind of uh, unstable populations in general, we have found that can be very stabilizing for those who have difficult psychosocial circumstances, those who suffer from homelessness, that can be very stabilizing for them. So I would add that in there, but we use it in lots of different patient populations and it can be very helpful and improve that retention. And that's what they didn't include in this study, but that can be something. But this was a little bit different. That's a little bit different. We're just talking about retention, but it was interesting. Very interesting points, a very interesting study. Thanks, Paula. Thank you. Have a good night. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on this show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.